Father, we're grateful that you have in your mercy drawn us together in Christ. We're thankful that you have allowed us the opportunity to be students of your word. And in this season of Advent, Lord, we are longing for things to be made right. And Lord, I pray for this morning as we have this time together that as those who have come to hear and Lord, for the one who is to teach, I pray that you would bring clarity, that you would bring illumination by your spirit, that you do the kind of work, Lord, that we can't manufacture on our own. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. There are two seats here. Um, Do we need another? Fran, you need somewhere to sit? Okay. Okay. Um, All right. Well, give you a little sort of heads up on what we're going to do together um, for the next three weeks. Um, I'm, I will be here this week and the next week um, thinking I'm kind of doing some big picture stuff today. Deborah and I have been in conversation. Deborah's going to do week three, so I'm really grateful to tag team with um, Ken and Leighton, I guess would be the official thing to say. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a privilege to, to work with, with, uh, with Deborah on this. Um, but the, the idea for this series is to think through this triad that we have um, that was really introduced first off by Aquinas. Um, He didn't make as much use of it, frankly, as John Calvin did. Calvin made great use out of the the trifold office of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about that. I will give an overview today of of some of this. Um, And and then, so prophet and priest are sort of in my wheelhouse. And and it's really the central theme, so I'm glad that Deborah will be able to to, to bring up the the final one on the kingship of, of Christ, which is one of the major themes involved here. So that... That's, I think, where would we had discussed. Um, so before all that, I, I, have a, I have a whole bunch of introductions, so um, uh, brace yourself. Uh, so the, the, the first thing I wanted to say is, um, I, I don't know what, you know, most of you are liturgical lifelongers. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of new to some of this. And, uh, and the season of Advent, oh, this is, this, you'll, you'll be interested in this, Marilyn. The, the season of Advent for my wife and for me um, really took on new meaning with our first real small group that we were a part of um, when we were when, when I was a student in St. Andrews. I, I shouldn't say it's our first small group, but because I was a youth director for five years, I was doing youth stuff. That, that kind of counted. Um, but then when we went overseas, there was a small group that began to meet in, in the first advent that we were in Scotland. And we got together very simple. We, we read the lectionary readings. We prayed together. We talked together. And something, I don't know, something began to happen uh, during that season so that the season, of, and that led, by the way, we, we meant to just do it for the, for the four weeks of Advent, but it led into two years of small group from that, from that little gathering. Um, so it was quite special for my wife and for me. And so I've tried to do some thinking about Advent, and there's different... There's different notions of this season through the life of the church, and some of you are are more aware of these things than I am, Um, but I found it quite interesting doing a little spade work on this to realize that there was a time in the life of the Western church, and there was some division on this, that Advent in some sense was on analogy to Lent. So that Advent was a season of of repentance, Advent was a season of, of reflection, um, and, and, and there was even a season of fasting for a certain period of time. So it wouldn't be um, an unusual question to ask in the season of Advent at one point in the history of the church, so what are you giving up this year for Advent? Right. Um, it w- that wouldn't have been uh, un- unreasonable. That in time passed out, but what was left 
I think was the solemn character of the season. You know, we live in a, this is a solemn character. I was pointing this out to my son this morning as we're kind of getting used to the, the, the rhythm of, of worshiping life here at, at Advent. The color, right? The liturgical color is purple. That's a solemn color. So we're in a season that's solemn, that's reflective. It's joyful. I want to take away from that, but it's a time for for reflection in anticipation of something big and grand. Um, so, so with that in mind, I do think it's one of those interesting blessings of providence that our season of Advent takes place at this particular moment in the calendrical year of the Western world. I mean, we're now in the post-Macy's Day Parade season. I'm, I'm not going to belabor you um, with uh, one more speech on the dangers of of consumerism and the dangers of commercialism, you know, I'll, I'll let Linus continue to do his dirty work on that, which I think that was on a few weeks ago. Now, but it's a good warning, isn't it, that in the season of Advent where the cultural norms around us are pressuring us to think in ways that really are countervalent to what we need to be thinking about as we move toward uh, the arrival of Jesus and the hope of his, of his second coming. Um, I like Christmas specials. Uh, you know, I, I don't think necessarily that corncob pipes and Gene Autry's voice are the antidote to the kind of thing that t- touches us deeply in this season. Um, but, you know, don't think I'm too pious. We have 96.5 permanently tuned in in our car. Um, that's, that's just a fixture. Um, but I do like some of these Christmas specials as well. I, I watched one uh, recently, the Andrea Bocelli Christmas special. Oh, this makes me points me out as a real nerd, doesn't it? Um, you know, so I'm watching this Bocelli Christmas special. Uh, I do love watching these Italian singers try to sing American Christmas carols or something. I mean, Pavarotti was the worst. Um, uh, Bocelli's okay, but it's still, you know, I'm a dreaming of a white Christmas kind of thing. It, it's got a, it's, a, you know, it, it, it has its moments, I think. Um, but then there was this, there was this part in the show um, where Bocelli. Um, is, is uh, inter- introduces this young mezzo soprano from Wales named Catherine Jenkins. You know, do you know this this singer? She's actually quite good. Um, she came out and and they began to sing this song, and it had all the kind of pablum and sentimentalism that we come to expect with this season. And I don't want to be cynical, okay? But I just I want to put it out there. Um, and and the song was something entitled "I I Believe." And they go on talking about I believe in in the power of love, and if we and, and it's basically what I would call a you know a, well for lack of a better term a kind of liberal turn into the self, right? In other words, if we we can make peace on earth, we can bring about this kind of new heaven on earth if we just look in within ourselves and tap into the power of love, the resources that every one of us have underneath um, you know the sort of the skin of our own chest, and that that's the kind of the, the challenge. You know, and I there's something very uh, sentimental about that. I, I, I like that kind of word, but but the other side of me, the other side of you, right, recognizes that we're singing that kind of thing. Another rocket goes into Gaza. Another one goes back. Another bomb just dropped in Afghanistan. Civilians. I mean, it, it, it's, we just know too much about the world. We're too much on the far side of the beginning of the 20th century to have that kind of romantic hope that humanity just needs to dig a little bit deeper uh, to bring about this new heaven on earth. I mean, I think we all recognize that, you know, that's just, that was the great promise of modernity in the 1700s and the 1800s, that just like we have figured out the centrality of our own minds, we can now look at the world and make sense of what it means to be moral creatures as well. 
what Immanuel Kant called the categorical imperative that's in each of us. We can, we can find the thou ought that is within us. We can move that forward and create the right kind of societies that reflect and mirror the nature and the world around us. And what's the problem with that? I mean, that sounds really good on paper. Well, the problem with that now is World War One, World War Two a host of other conflicts around the world. I mean, we recognize that that kind of kingdom that we're hoping for is not going to be brought about by human resources. It's going to be brought about by what Calvin called the coming prophet, priest, and king. And so this is the, I think, as we're in this season, and I don't want to in any way take away from, you know, the Rudolph red Nose part. I mean, that's great. I mean, my kids are all over that. And I, 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 I affirm it wholeheartedly. My, my middle son, Jackson, announced to us... Um, this week, and he's a bit of our rationalist, frankly, in the family. He announced to us, I, "I've chosen to believe in Santa," um, and uh, and I because he had he was well, right. He he's the one that we've had to um, you, we've had to tell him, you know, you don't do the spoiler thing at school. That's not cool, you know, to tell the kids in your class that Santa doesn't exist. And we've had to really sort of chide him on that. But he's announced this week that he believes in that, and he's going forward with that. And I told him, I said, let him let him be. We'll let that go. Um, so I, all of that to say, as we're in this season, which I think is a really complex one, frankly, when it comes to the state of our souls, what we're desiring, what we're needing, because Advent taps into something deep inside of us. We're all longing for something more. I and mean, we all recognize that this can't be the best that it is. I mean, and again, not to be overly um, dark about this, but even the best that we have in life points to something that's needed in the sense that there, 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 must, be, there must be more. So, so with that in mind, I, I want to talk a little bit this morning, big picture, about Mark 1, 1 to 3. I don't know if you have Bibles or not. Um, I always forget, we don't do that very much around Advent. We'll get Bibles up some more. Um, but let me read to you Mark, and then I'm going to go back to Jeremiah. So put your seatbelts on. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it was written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then it goes on in verse 4, John the baptizer. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. He was doing a baptism for the, for the forgiveness of sins. And then he proclaims, I'm not the light. I'm pointing away to the light, the one that's coming. Then he goes into verse 9, and we see, this is all, by the way, prologue in Mark's gospel. Then we go into verse 9, and we see Jesus comes to the waters, and Jesus is baptized. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too far off script this morning, but Jesus' baptism is integral to your salvation and mine. Because what Jesus does in his baptism is he identifies with sinners like you and me. I mean, he goes into the water not needing baptism, but identifying with sinners, right, so that we in our baptism would be identified with him. It's actually quite rich what goes on there. And then we go on to verse 12. Immediately Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan. And then we come to verse 14, and now Jesus begins to announce his gospel ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So, so Mark 1, 1 to 14 is prologue um, to the whole of Mark's gospel. Um, what, what is a prologue? Well, in some sense, it's related to John 1 as well, where we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's also, I think, an analogy to the beginning of the book of Job. I mean, what do you have at the beginning of the book of Job? Here, Satan comes into the very divine council, 
God asks him, where have you been? And he says, well, I've been wandering around. And, and then, this is a little disturbing. I know most of you have read Job, so you know this. Then God brings Job up first. I always hate that part. But God brings Job up says, by the way, have you considered my servant Job? And they had this sort of rat-tat-tat back and forth. And then we get into the narrative. What does the prologue provide for you and for me as a reader? It provides for us a kind of interpretive framework, a kind of perspective on the whole that we would that the that the actual um, participants in the narrative, Job, Eliphaz, all of his friends, they don't know that part. And, and by the way, Job never knows that part, at least within the narrative. We never have a time within within the book of Job where God says, "Oh, and by the way," and Job was asking this question, "Why?" By the way, this is why that happened. Now, Satan came in. My honor was on the line. We had this sort of cosmic duel, and 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 you were the it, that never happens. So what is Mark 1, 1 to 14 providing for you and for me? It's providing that kind of that kind of prologue, that kind of framework for reading that anticipates what's about to come to give you a kind of map for where you're going as you start to enter into this narrative of Mark that then moves rather quickly, frankly, in the Gospel of Mark, to the Passion. Who is this person? What, what's this all about? In the beginning, right? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me talk a little bit about that and then uh, move back to Jeremiah. The beginning. It's a strange way for a gospel to begin. I, 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 I thought there might be a board in here. I'd, I'd write this up for you, but it's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to make too big of a deal out of the Greek, okay, because I think that can get a little uh, Nietzschean wheel to power kind of stuff. Um, but but the, the Greek there has no article. There's no the beginning. It's just beginning of the gospel. It's, it's, it's a bit of resting, actually, the way in which Mark's gospel begins. Um, but what's going on here? Well, it's the beginning, that is, it's, this is how, the, how it all started, of the gospel, the euangelion, which relates to Jesus Christ. Now, I know that you know this word because we say it every Sunday in our liturgy together. This is the gospel of our Lord. By the way, I noticed on the bulletin today that your title is Gospeler. That has to be one of the coolest terms. You, Kathy, you are my favorite Gospeler. I like that. I was telling somebody the other day, I said, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, call her to read the Bible to me when I'm dying. I, I need her around. Um, but the, the Gospel, the Evangelion, what is this word? Well, it's a word that you all know, at least from a Greek standpoint, that means good news. But that's not enough. Right? I mean, just to have a kind of rudimentary definition doesn't lead us into the content of that word, what it, the content actually is. So I wanted to, to just briefly let you see that I think, this is my, my dog in this fight, that the term gospel has its root in the book of Isaiah and, frankly, in the Old Testament as a whole. Listen to this, Isaiah 40, verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, Herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good tidings. What is this good tidings? This Bashar, which is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, as euangelion, as gospel. Right. So get up on a high mountain, O Zion, and announce the gospel. Well, what is the content of the announcement of the good news? Well, here it is. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here's another verse that I think many of you are familiar with. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of the messengers who announce peace, shalom, wholeness, who bring euangelion, 
who bring good news, who announce, and here's a further pressing of it, salvation, Yeshua, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So what is the announcement of the gospel in the book of Isaiah? The announcement of the good news is your God is here. And the further announcement of that as we sort of press on is your God is here, he's reigning, and then, and this is what I find quite shocking about Isaiah 52.7, the announcement of peace, the announcement of the reign of God, the announcement of the coming kingdom of God is followed just a few verses later in Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53. Behold my servant, he acts wisely. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.10 goes on, It was the will, it was the delight of the Lord to crush him, to, 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 to bruise him. Why? So that he might make many people righteous. So the announcement of the coming kingdom of God, the announcement that your God reigns, the announcement that we've moved from the period of judgment into the period of Yeshua, of salvation, is predicated on the fact that God comes, his kingdom comes, but it comes in a way that surprises us. It baffles us. There's a paradox here. He comes and he announces his kingdom, his, his, his reign, by suffering and, and dying. Right? So this is what that sort of gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ is about in Mark 1. And I think, if I can go back to Mark, it works something like this. If I can find it. So, verses uh, 2 and 3, the gospel of Jesus Christ began in this way. I'm giving you kind of a rough outline here. Verses 2 to 3, it began theologically by referring to the Bible, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Number 2, it began with the bapt- with narratively, in the storyline, with the work of John the Baptist, who was in many ways the culmination of all the Old Testament prophets. And then it goes on from that. It began in this way as well with Jesus' baptism and his temptation. I mean, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's tempted, and he comes out. How many days, by the way, was he in the wilderness? Forty days. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years. I mean, there's a lot of this Israel typology that's going on here. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's tempted there by Satan. And unlike Israel, the nation, Jesus comes out Dominant. He comes out as a victor. He prevailed over the temptation of Satan. And then Jesus begins to announce his own gospel work. It began in this way. That is, the kingdom of God is here. Repent. Now, which, by the way, wasn't necessarily good news. It was good news for some and bad news for others. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's, it's an announcement that it's really already it's as good as done. And what's the only right response to that? Repentance, a turning completely to God uh, in contrition and renewal. Right. So it began in those ways, in those four ways. I want to talk to you a little bit about its beginning in Scripture because this taps into our theme uh, for the next three weeks, Jesus' prophet, priest, and king. The first thing that the gospeler, well, the, go- well, sorry, the gospel that turns to is Scripture. It does so, by the way, in most of the gospels. 
It's a fascinating thing to see that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, and we're chalcedonic here in our Christology, right? Fully God, fully man, a single subject. We believe that Jesus had two natures, but he was one person, the divine, the human nature, but in one person. All of that that we find in Jesus of Nazareth, and the shocking thing is that Jesus of Nazareth felt the compulsion to provide the warrant and justification for his ministry by appealing to the scriptures. Mark 1, it began in this way. And then where do they go? Immediately it goes to Isaiah. It goes to the Old Testament. You see this in the road to Emmaus where Jesus is having this, I, I think frankly, comedic encounter with these uh, two on the road to Emmaus. And where does he go when he goes into their house with them? He goes to the Bible, beginning with Moses and beginning with the prophets. He began to tell them all the things concerning himself. So that you see within Jesus' own frame of reference, this submission to his own word. The necessity that Jesus shows of, of the anterior authority of the Old Testament to provide the shape and to provide the scope for how we are to understand who he actually is. There's a lot of, I, I, this, is, this is the kind of CNN, Discovery Channel, sexy stuff that's on now all the time about who Jesus is. I mean, it's a big question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Uh, so, some of you, I think, are probably intrigued by this. You, you've heard about this Jesus seminar where they're sitting around trying to find out who the real Jesus is. So what do they do? They recreate the Second Temple world. They recreate the Greco-Roman world of the first century. They recreate the kind of schismatic world that Jesus might have been a part of, the Essenes, or, or, and the list goes on and on. And what do they do? They then try to look at the Gospels and see, well, which part did Jesus really say, which was a later accretion? Uh, you, you, you know this guy Bart Ehrman. Have you read about this guy Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman's a former fundamentalist. Uh, went to Moody Bible Institute. Um, I can appreciate this background. Then he goes off to do his PhD, and, 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 and he can't hold it together, I think, theologically with what's going on before. And so he sort of chucks it off. I mean, some of the scariest people, frankly, are former fun fundamentalists who are now agnostics and atheists. I mean, that's a, that's a scary person. Almost as scary as a person who was a former fundamentalist who then meets like reformed theology or something like that. That's a scary person too. You know, because then not only are they angry, but they're angry and they're right. I mean, that gets really, really scary. Um, but you see a lot of this kind of questioning of who Jesus is. And what do they, how, how, what's the approach on that? Well, we need to uncover the psychology of Jesus. We need to sort of bury ourselves in the first temple world so that we can breathe the air that a Jew would have breathed during those days. We should, so that we can sort of sense and smell and feel the way in which a, 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 a rebellious, frankly, sage or prophet or whoever would have felt in light of the Roman imperial domination that was going on. And that's, that's how we get to understand who Jesus really was. There's a lot of traction with that, frankly. Even among those who would be sort of conservative, names that I might name that you would know, and I like them very much. But I think the problem with that kind of reading is it runs into the face of what we might call the canonical sufficiency of the Gospels to tell us who Jesus was. Do you know how John's Gospel ends? I could tell you many more things about Jesus, so much so that the books would go all the way to the heavens and back. Right? But I've written these things that you might believe for years. And I wouldn't go, you know, I, I'll, I'll be soft on my reading on this. Um, but for years, I read that as a positive, superlative kind of statement. In other words, Jesus did so many other things that we could just keep on writing ad nauseum he did so much. I actually don't think it's a superlative statement anymore, even though that's true. 
I think the statement is one of negation and falsification. What's, what's being stated in this way? Yes, Jesus did many other things, so much so that the books could fill libraries if we were to turn to them. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a setting up, to my mind, of the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over against all the other kind of gospels that are out there. And you've seen enough of this Discovery Channel, CNN stuff to know that they're out there. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, that was a hot one a few years ago. The Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas. And by the way, if you read one of these Nag Hammadi, neo-Gnostic Gospels, they're all the same. I mean, you know, people get excited about them. They're, they're, they're weird, frankly. Um, and just so you know how the Gospel of Thomas ends, I'm not making this up. Do you, do you know how the Gospel of Thomas ends? It ends, you women will appreciate this, and all women will be made turned into men. So they can then enjoy the kingdom of God or something like that, right? That, that's how it is. That, that should inspire hope in you. Um, but I, I do think there's a sense in which the gospel writers recognize that there would be these counterfeits out there, and they were out there. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living of God. That's a claim to the material sufficiency of the fourfold gospel to tell us authoritatively this is who Jesus is. Well, then how do I know who he is? By psychologizing his mind? By recreating the world out of which he came? All of that might be helpful. But the way in which we understand or gain best purchase on the identity of Jesus Christ is by looking at what he said and what he did. What is it that came out of his mouth? And what actions did he perform that helps us see and make some sense about his, his identity? You remember this famous line from Aristotle, don't you, about rhetoric, and he said basically character is plot. Now there's a lot that needs to go into this, but character is plot. How do we know what a character is? We look at their plot. We look at them in a narrated form to be able to say, there he is, there's Jesus, acting in accord with his identity, saying things that accord with who he is so that we can point him out in a lineup and say, that's Jesus Christ, he's acting in this particular way. It's why, by the way, the embodied actions of Jesus are so significant when coming to terms with who he is. I mean, what did Jesus say? I'll tear this temple down and I'll build it up again in three days. Jesus goes into the temple and begins to cleanse it. And after that, the Pharisees sought to kill him. You, you know why? Because they got it. Who comes back to cleanse the temple? Yahweh comes back to cleanse his temple. And here is Jesus embodying something that, frankly, is in the purview of God alone. I mean, th this gets also into the forgiveness of sins. Who has the authority to forgive sins, grumbled the Pharisees, other than God himself? And here is Jesus doing that kind of forgiveness. Or he stands on the boat with, with Peter and the others, and he says, peace be still. And all of a sudden, the, the seas stop because, why? The Creator is speaking and recognizing the one who's speaking. When we want to get a sense of who Jesus is, we look at his words, but we also look at his actions that identify him in that particular way. And this gets us to Calvin's triptych, prophet, priest, and king. What I think is fascinating about this trifold model, prophet, priest, and king, is that Jesus fulfills, right? he brings to the fullness all of these Old Testament figures, all of these Old Testament figures, themes, uh, but he does so in ways that are surprising. I mean, think about this. I'm going to give you an overview here. Jesus is our final prophet, 
But unlike the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus is actually identified with the very word that he is to bring. So he's not just the prophet Jeremiah who's bringing the word. And we see that, by the way, all throughout the prophets. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah said. So that the word of the Lord is not collapsed onto the prophetic figure. The prophetic figure is the medium by which the word is communicated. And what does the word do in the Old Testament? It's pressuring the people of God. It's pressuring them. It's reminding them about the character of their God. It's reminding them about God's covenant love for them. And it's desiring for the people of God to enflesh it. This is fascinating, I think. You are to embody the word of God so that it communicates to the world around you missionally who your God is, your electing, loving God. In other words, the word presses, even in the Old Testament, to be enfleshed, to be embodied, to be incarnated, if I can use that term improperly. But it can never do so with with the nation of Israel. Why? Because of this long history of failure with sin. And so Jesus comes onto the scene as prophet, announcing the word of God, but more so than that, he actually is predicated and identified with the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We see him as as the word. We also see him and the prophet. We see him as a priest. And we'll talk about this more a little bit next week. But unlike the priests of the Old Testament, Jesus is both priest and victim at the same time. So I think what you're beginning to sense here is the fulfillment that Jesus brings of the prophet, priest, and king, these various shepherds of the Old Testament, right? These various shepherds. What you see in Jesus' fulfillment of them is that he collapses things that are distinct in his own identity. He becomes both the priest, the one who offers something to the Father, who represents humanity to the Father, but he's also the victim. He's the goat that is slain. That when you go into the Holy of Holies, you have the goat's blood that's put on the corners of the Ark of the Covenant. What does that do? That brings about ritual purification so that the fellowship between God and His people can be restored once again for one more year. But there's another goat. Remember that one? Then they come together and they place their hands symbolically on this goat. And they send this goat where? Out into the wilderness for Azazel. Well, what in the world is Azazel? Don't know. I have no idea what Azazel is. But that's where he goes. Some demon, maybe the desert. But what is that goat representing? The actual removal of the force and the power and the presence of sin from God's people. Jesus brings all of that together. Priest, goat for Azazel, goat for the Holy of Holies. He brings all of that together in a single act of his own, his own atoning work on our, on our account. And then when we talk about the king, this is another thing, and I don't want to steal from Deborah's thunder, but this is a fascinating thing when you look at the Old Testament, that there is this kind of pressure to note that the coming king, the ultimate Davidic king, is in some sense related to Yahweh himself. Right? Psalm 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, that goes into Psalm 100. Who is the king there? Yahweh is king. Make a joyful noise unto Yahweh, all ye lands. Serve him with gladness. Come into his presence with singing, into his courts with praise. That's royal kind of language. So that we know that Yahweh will return to his people as king, but we also know that he'll be a Davidic figure. So here you see the kingship of Jesus bringing together both sides of this, that he is both Yahweh and he is the promised Davidic king all at once. Right. So there's this, I mean, Calvin's on to something here. 
when he taps into this notion in the Old Testament of the prophet, priest, and king preparing us, giving us a sense of anticipation um, for God's for God's ultimate work. Now look at this here, Jeremiah uh, 23. time here. And I'll stop a little bit for some questions. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. And therefore the Lord says to them, the God of Israel, to the shepherds who shepherd my people. And this shepherding language, by the way, is a term in the Old Testament, that I think can do almost triple duty. That you recognize that the king functions as the shepherd of God's people. You recognize that the priests function as the shepherds of God's people. And you also recognize as well that you have um, prophets who can function as the shepherds of God's people. So it can be used in a kind of elastic way to cover those various leaders within within God's covenant community. And what is the prophet saying here? Woe to you shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who scatter my people and driven them away, you've not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Verse 5, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and he shall deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. It's actually one of the most fascinating verses in Jeremiah to me. Because here you have this coming figure, this coming shepherding figure, who will actually be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Now there's a play going on here. The king at the time in Jeremiah's day was the king Zedekiah. Zedekiah was a name, if we were to break it apart, that meant my righteousness is the Lord. So that's actually what Zedekiah's name means. My righteousness is Yahweh. And there's an inverse going on here, a play on words that's taking place where it says here, Yahweh, our righteousness. It's a, it's a dig, for lack of a better term. It's a dig at Zedekiah, the current king, saying, you know what? You, quite, you haven't quite done the shepherding that God calls you to do. Woe to you. But there is coming a shepherd who will do this for you, who will act righteously and wisely. I wanted you to see one more text, and then I'll make some final comments. Jeremiah 33:14, which I think was the lectionary reading last week. If, if did they do the Jeremiah reading? I was in another church last week. No, um, Jeremiah 33:14 um, through 18. Now listen to this. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called Yahweh Zedkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Who's the it? The it there is the city. So back in 23, chapter 23, we see the coming figure, the coming shepherd as Yahweh our righteousness. And now we see the actual city itself being called Yahweh our righteousness. I'm going to come back to that. Verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings and to make off grain offerings and to make sacrifices for all time. What you see here, I think, this is great stuff. In this tight um, little paragraph of Jeremiah, you see the coming together of prophet, priest, and king in one particular moment. There's a what, what's the prophet part? The prophetic part is the fact that Yahweh is speaking through his servant, who's announcing this. There's the prophetic part. The, the, the prophet speaking, he's announcing that God is coming, that he's coming in his servant. But he also, we see here as well, the conjoining of the coming king and the priest. What is it that Israel needs? What is it that Judah needs in perpetuity for all time? Judah needs a king, it needs a representative, and Judah needs a priest. Judah needs one to stand before, to, to, to mediate between them and between, between their God. So you see this prophet, priest, and king coming together within even this tight chapter, pointing us to the future in an Advent sense. All right. You know, don't you, I know, that our lives, that your lives, are really an Advent-shaped existence. It's one of the things that I really like about the calendrical year within the life of the church. It gets us into this rhythm where we move, we know, don't we, that a year from now, where are we going to be again? Well, a year from now, we're going to be in the second Sunday of Advent together. And we're going to be thinking about some of these things as well. And, and then three years from now, it's going to be the same thing. We're going to go to Lent again. There's a certain kind of season that takes place in the life of the church that I think testifies, frankly, to the seasons in our own life. I went through a kind of spiritual phase at one point in my journey, and, um, and maybe you have as well, where I really believe that my, my sanctification... My growth in holiness was this ever kind of ascending scale upward, right? Um, have you ever felt that? I mean, I'm just you're going to every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, which is a wonderful statement, except for when it's not true. I mean, that's, that's um, so you kind of it's just going to get better and better and better. And I'm going to kind of you know I don't know maybe the end of that's Nirvana. I don't know what or, or Enoch and he was not. I, I don't know what happens. But the point is, I think we live enough life to recognize that our spiritual journey is as much measured by two steps forward, a few steps back, up. And I mean, it's, it's a complicated thing. You know, I thought I had a few things worked out, and then I got married. And then I realized, huh, I got a lot of things to work out, right? <laughs> and then I thought, you know, then my wife, we, we at least got our master's degree in marriage at some point, you know, along the way, through a lot of struggle and study. And then our kids showed up. And I'm back to school again, right? Now, and there's this constant, there's a season, there's a rhythm to life that forces us to recognize probably instead of the ever ascending model, progressive model, we need to recognize a more dynamic again and again and again model. Why is it that the city in Jeremiah 33 could be called Yahweh our righteousness? Isn't that fascinating? The city itself, the people of God, are called the Lord our righteousness. Why? Calvin was on to this, he was right, because it derives, it's derivative from the righteousness that we see in that coming shepherd king priest figure in Jeremiah 23.6, who is our righteousness. Um, we talk a lot about, about that. I heard the dean this morning saying something very similar. Um, you know, about, we, we talk about the gospel a lot around Advent, and, and we do that well. I think that's actually a great, a great gift. Why? Because we need to be reminded again and again and again that all of our righteousness is derivative. It's an alien righteousness. It's something that we have because we're in Him. 
and it's something that he did for us in his living and his dying, both in the way in which he lived for us and the way in which he, in the way in which he died for us. A Presbyterian leader at the beginning of the 20th century named J. Gresham Machen was on his deathbed uh, in South Dakota on a preaching tour, and uh, he sent an, e- a, an email. He sent a telegram. <laughs> um, he, was, uh, he sent a telegram to his friends, uh, and he knew that it was probably close, his death, and he said, I find myself resting in the active obedience of Jesus. No hope without it. End quote. The Lord is our righteousness. He actively and passively obeyed for you and for me. And in this season of Advent, as we hear all these kind of syrupy, sentimental songs, let it touch us deeply in our hearts to recognize that what we're really yearning for and longing for is for the fulfillment of what Jesus himself has begun as prophet, priest, and king. Now, I don't, do we have time for questions? Probably not, huh? Okay, fire one so that I, my dad won't call me a liar. Um, in, in, any questions? Next week. <laughs>